0: Okay, tonight's topic is um, the ideal partner. And if uh, the right people who need to hear this are not here, just pass this class on. <laughs> Whoever you know, just tell them what we've discussed. A Jew does not need to undergo years of agonizing experimentation in order to discover the warmth and genuine love, which are the rich, integral components of a good marriage. Fortunately, that's the attitude today, is try it out, try this, try that. We do not have to adapt our lovemaking to rules established by the so-called experts, who capitalize on one's feelings of inadequacy, we do not have to subscribe to the dictates of marriage manuals, which are invoked today and out of fashion tomorrow. Our marriage manual was received from God. It has withstood the test of time and has achieved a track record of a success over thousands of years. Tragically, around us today, we see marriages breaking apart 50% and over divorce rates. What has happened to society? What has happened to Jewish society? Our marriage manual was received from God and unfortunately, tragically the laws which contain the secret of marital happiness are no longer widely known to our people. Secularization threatens the very heart of our existence. It is undermining the foundations of the Jewish home, which for thousands of years has been the soul and sanctuary of Jewish life. Therefore, the erosion which we are witnessing today threatens not only the institution of marriage, but also jeopardizes Jewish survival. That's what we're seeing around us today. People who are married have ZPG, zero population growth. People who are not married, they're single, tragically, many till their 40s. And our young, our youth, are just delaying and delaying and delaying, playing games. What is going to happen? They say of all the ethnic groups in America, Jews have the lowest reproduction rates. I think it's 1.7. That's for every couple, 1.7 Jews are produced. That's the average. And we know that's not enough to reproduce and keep our statistics going. In Israel, it's slightly higher, it's 2.3 the Torah for thousands of years has been the soul and sanctuary of Jewish life and the home has been the temple, the foundation of Judaism the erosion which we are witnessing has really jeopardized Jewish survival we find in uh, the Kabbalah tells us that God created the world using two letters the main letters of creation are the yud and the he. We find these letters used in two words, ish and isha. Man, ish, and isha, woman. Isha means from man, isha. The ish, aleph yud shin, Isha, Aleph, Shin, Hay. Similar letters, the Aleph and the Shin are equal to both words. Aleph and Shin is Esh, fire. Yud and Hey is God's name. Aleph, Yud, Shin is for man. Aleph, Shin, Hey for woman. If you have the Yud, Hey, if you have God's name in between them, you have Ish and Isha. You have a successful union of man and wife. You take God's name out of it, you have fire. Without the spirituality, lots of relationships end up in fire. People burn each other up. Judaism views marriage as the most sacred function of human beings the high priest and the holiest place on earth, the Holy of Holies, on the holiest day of the year. Yom Kippur had to be married. He had to be married. In fact, the Mishnah goes, gives other opinions. They go to extremes. Rabbi Yehuda says, let's marry him two wives just in case his first wife dies. <laughs> so the rabbis say, no, there's no end to this. If you worry about the first wife die, maybe worry about the second wife, maybe. But we do see that what it was stressed that the high priest had to be married. In fact, what is the criteria of a high priest? And this comes down in Jewish law. When you pick a chazan, when you pick a cantor for the high holidays, one of the things you should look for is a person who is married. A man has to be married. Why? Because a married person has some sensitivities that an unmarried person does not have. A married person has sensitivities in terms of caring and sharing, which an unmarried person doesn't even think about. In the Hebrew language, marriage, the word for marriage, there are two words for marriage actually. There's nisuin, nasui, talk about someone who is married. And there's Kiddushin, which we refer to the ring ceremony, is referred to the act of Kiddushin. What does Kiddushin mean? Kiddushin comes from the word Kiddush. We do Kiddush on Friday night, we do Kiddush on Shabbat morning, we do Kiddush in Yom Tov. What is Kiddush? Sanctification. We're sanctifying the day. The act of marriage in Jewish law is a supreme act of sanctification. In fact, the Ashkenazi custom is to fast on the day of marriage. Why? Rabbi so says say it's like Yom Kippur. It's a day on which a person's sins are forgiven. It's a holy day. The couple are entering a new phase in their lives. They're turning a new existence together. Entering into a new phase of existence. It's a holy day. And the act of marriage itself is a holy act. Let's write them, don't fast. Why? We don't want to turn the act of marriage into a sad day. <laughs> we don't want to make it into a fast day we want to make it into a happy occasion therefore there's no fast we make it more joyous kiddushin marriage is an act of sanctification what is sanctification what is kirusha? and the answer is kirusha holiness is the opposite separation it's the opposite of unholiness it's separating what are we separating from we are separating from prohibited partners if you look at the bottom of the list I gave you, you'll find there's a group of forbidden partners which a person may not marry. marriage. the progeny of an adulterous relationship, a mumzer, a married person. It's adultery. In the case of a woman who's divorced, we wait an additional 90 days. This was a precaution for the child if she was pregnant. Maybe the second husband would not Be as gentle as the first husband was. It's not his child. Maybe there'd be a miscarriage after that. One's own divorced spouse. That's interesting. There's a a law, interesting law, which says, if I get married and I divorce my wife and she marries someone else in between, I cannot remarry her. Why is that? That was to prevent legalized wife swapping. People have this bright idea. You know what? We'll get divorced, we'll swap... We'll divorce again re- remarry. It's, uh, this stops legalized wife swapping. Pardon? Wife swapping. Swapping wives with someone else. But what you can do is legalize it. How do we legalize it? We'll get divorced. We'll marry each other's partners. We'll get divorced again. We'll remarry our own partners. Torah says no. Once your wife marries someone else, you can never take her back. A widow of a childless husband who is survived by his brother until after the chalitza ceremony has been performed. In Jewish law, if a man dies with no children, his wife has to marry the brother. Today we don't do that. We do chalitza instead. It's like an act of divorce. The brother has to divorce um, his dead brother's wife if she has no children a partner with whom adultery was committed a person commits adultery they can never in Jewish law remarry marry that person in close relatives it's incest and then the laws of a Kohen a priest may not marry three categories of women divorcee and a prostitute we'll, we'll discuss some other time So in the Hebrew language, marriage is called kiddushin. It's an act of sanctification. It's an act of holiness as opposed to the act of unholiness and taking a prohibited partner. To marry a Jew is an unquestioned requirement. That's hard enough for most of us. 50%, as we mentioned before, 52% now the statistics are in America. It's 52% into marriage. But even when marrying a Jew We have some necessary qualities a person has to look for. I'm going to try and list them, obviously I'm going to generalize a lot. And you have on your left hand side of the page necessary qualities, and then on the right hand side we have desirable qualities. They're not as necessary, but they're desirable. They're good to get. The Talmud tells a story of a very wealthy aristocratic Roman woman. Once asked the rabbi, What is God doing with his time since he created the world? I mean, after all, I mean, he created the world. Bang, bang, everything's gone. Everything's created. What is he doing now? So the rabbi gave her a brilliant answer. Very simple answer. He says, You know what God is doing? God is making matches. God is fixing people up. He's a sharkhan. He's a universal sharkhan. He's making matches between people. The Roman woman smiled and lifted up her nose. I said, Why? She said, I can do that in no time. Thomas says she had 200 slaves, 100 female slaves, 100 male slaves. She goes home. She lines them up. She says, You with you, you with you, you with you, you with you. Made the matches, so went to bed that night. She woke up the next morning. She went to inspect the newlyweds. One has a black eye, one has a broken bone, one has scratches. And she scratched her head and she said, maybe the rabbi has a point. It's not so easy to make matches. As anyone who's been involved a bit with singles will know, you try to put them together and what happens? Right. It may look good, but it may not always work. Everyone is different and it's amazing. People's tastes are so amazing. I mean, I, whenever I see this, I say, How wondrous are it works, O God. Why? Because every single human being is different. What I like, someone else may not like. What this one likes, someone else may not like. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. You know, there's a beautiful Gemara. There's a big debate between Hillel and Shammai. I'm sure you've heard of Hillel and Shammai, two great rabbis. Hillel was known for his kindness and humility, compassion, his cheerfulness. Shammai was very abrupt, but a genius. They had a big debate. When you go to a wedding. There's a mitzvah to to make the bride and groom happy. How do we make them happy? By flattering them. By telling them, you know, you tell the groom, your bride is so beautiful. She's gorgeous. So the debate is, supposing she's not gorgeous. Shammai says, you still say she's gorgeous. Hillel says, you can't tell her lies. How can you tell lies? She's not gorgeous. You can't tell lies. Praise something else. Praise her modesty. Praise her chastity. Praise this. Praise that. Praise something else. Don't say she's beautiful. She's not beautiful. So that's the answer. The answer is, Shammai answered, is if he married her, he must think she's beautiful. In his eyes, she's beautiful. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. So it's hard to make matches because everyone is different. Everyone has different tastes. The rabbi is never tired of warning against making quick decisions. A person has to make very slow decisions. Unfortunately, today, some decisions are very, very slow. People take two years. They're going out two years, three years, five years, ten years. What happens? When are you going to get married? Well, you know what? We don't want to ruin it. You know, by We'll lose the magic. When we get married, we lose the magic, you know. And in fact, some couples have. They live together 10 years, they get married, and then two years later, they're divorced. What happened? The magic. is not the same. We discussed that a bit last week. Then we talked about George Bernard Shaw. He said, person should always be in continuous ecstasy. Therefore, he says, the person should never get married. So The rabbis cautioned in the Talmud, Matun nasiv itata. Be slow to get married. Take your time. Make the right decision. It should not be approached with lightheadedness. It's not a lightheaded decision. It's a very slow, careful decision because that decision may haunt a person for the rest of their life. Whether they're divorced, not divorced, that decision will haunt the person for the rest of their life. Every relationship leaves an impact on the person. The person the Talmud says be careful. Think. Be slow. What does that really mean? That means, think intellectually. Make a rational decision. We talked last week about people following their eyes and following their minds and following their people that are lovesick and moonstruck. It's not the time to make decisions. Step back, think rationally. We're going to go through the different things a person should think about. Even in an age when marriage was arranged by parents, the bride and groom had to see one another and give mutual approval before the wedding. In fact, part of the wedding ceremony is the bedeken, where the groom lifts up the veil and sees who he's marrying. Without that, it could be what's called a mekach ta'ut, a mistaken sale. What does that mean? It could be Lea. the classic case is Jacob. He marries uh, thought he was marrying Rachel, he gets Leah. But that's where we get the idea from. But it's a mistaken sale. What's a mistaken sale? I go into the store and I order this piece of furniture. And they, I order it from a catalog. And what happens? Instead of getting what I ordered, I get something else completely. That the rabbis say that sale is annulled. That's a mistaken sale. Yes. But they had to see each other. If they saw each other, they said, you know what? I don't like them. What happened was, there's a lot of anguish, a lot of persuasion, last-minute kind of pressure. You know, we pay for the wedding, we pay for the dowry, we pay for this, we pay for that. Get married already. Usually what happened was people were just too young to make their minds up about what they wanted. Usually the parents decided. The kid was 14, 15, 16, 18. Right. But well, I'm saying when they're married, they're, they're too young to think, you know. What do I want? My, kid, my parents put me together and that's it. That's all, I, that's all I know. Yes. Right. Listen, if you're stuck together, listen, I told my wife, look, we're stuck together. Let's make the most of it. What's the use? If we're always looking for the exit signs, then you know what? Oh man, it's not so good. I'll always get better. You know, Maybe I'll find something better. But if you make up your mind, you're stuck in the boat together. Now we can either stay here and fight, or we can stay here and have a good time. If we're sensible human beings, what will we say to each other? We'll say, look, we're stuck with each other for the rest of our lives, right? For eternity, for the next world as well. Let's have a good time. Why should we uh, torture each other? Why? Why do so many people torture each other? Why? What's the use of it? It's like being neighbors with someone. You're stuck with the neighbor. What can you do? You sell your house and move. What are you going to do? Make the most of it. We talked about love last week, so we said that love is commitment and giving and this and that and the other. We talked about it last week, but really, that's commitment is number one. It has to be commitment. And then, if people are committed to each other, they have to work it out. They're stuck. There's nothing else you can do. That's really what marriage is. Marriage should be total commitment and if it's total commitment we're stuck and there's no other way out a person should think of divorce shouldn't even talk about it should never bring up the topic once it's brought up it's not taboo anymore divorce should be a taboo in a relationship unless it is really so dreadful and the other person is not willing to make any efforts there's nothing else you can do so there is divorce in Jewish law but it should be a taboo and hopefully if you Pick the right person in the first place, and we're going to talk about different qualities. One of them is number 11, which is probably one of the most important, someone you can communicate with. Because if you can't communicate from day one, then who says it's going to get better 20 years later? (laughs) So the rabbis cautioned, make a slow decision. Give mutual approval before the wedding. And we find that one of the major prayers in the Bible, one of the first prayers in the Bible, was the prayer uttered by Eliezer. Next week's Torah portion. Chayeserah. Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. What happens? The servant starts praying. And we learn the image of the ideal wife from the prayers of Eliezer. What does he pray for? He notes Rebecca's beauty, he stresses her chastity, but the dominant criteria that emerges is she is generous, hospitable to strangers, and kind to animals. That's really what happens. The whole story is based around these three qualities. He asks her for water, she says, sure, I'll give you water, no problem. Not only water for you, I'll give you water for your camels. And do you have a place to stay tonight? Come and stay with me. We've got plenty of food. We've got plenty of straw for the camels. So we see these are the major qualities a person has to look for. In fact, the Code of Jewish Law has a whole section where he talks about what should a person look for in their potential marriage partner. And he says three qualities. The first three qualities on the list, on the left-hand side, are from the Code of Jewish Law. First one is, the quality, the trait of a Jew is Number two, actually, modesty. A person has to be modest. A person who's boastful and flaunting and ostentatious, stay away from. Because that's just show. And you don't know how many people, they're in public, they're kissy, 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 holding hands. They go home and they snarl at each other. That's ostentation. Keep away from a person who is all show. Glitz. Glitz and glamour, That's Hollywood. What happens? How many wives and husbands do they have? Elizabeth Taylor, how many? 8 wow i didn't even think that wow <laughs> okay all right first one is modesty what does modesty mean god is referred to as modesty About it. Second one is Rachmanim. The Kodujushal says compassionate, a person who has compassion on others, on animals. And thirdly, he says Gomle Chasadim, a person who is kind, kind hearted person. You know, it's interesting, you can always see what people are like if you put them near children. You put a person near a child, it's a very, very important test before marriage. If a person sees a child and runs the other way, don't get married to them. And if the child runs the other way, also don't get married to them. <laughs> Why? That's, the biggest, that's one of the biggest tests of compassion. How compassionate is a person? Whoever is arrogant and cruel and does no kindness is not, probably not even Jewish. And if he's a Jew, check into his pedigree. That's what the Talmud says. All right. where do we see this from? We find that the Talmud refers to God as Rachmana, the Merciful One. We have a whole section in the Berkant Amazon called Harachaman. Harachaman, Yishlachlanu. What's Harachaman? Harachaman, the Merciful One. Rachmanus. Don't tell anyone I said that. Rachmanut. What is Rachmanut? Compassion. God is referred to as the merciful one. What is the root of the word rachum? What is the root of this word? The root of the word is rechem. Rechem means the uterus or the womb of the woman. Right, The womb, according to mind, warmth and care of the mother for a child. That is the ultimate compassion. That's what Saudi today is lacking unfortunately Eliezer by asking Rivka Rebecca for water for his camels taught the world that one of the crucial tests is whether a person exhibits this compassion to animals even causing pain to living creatures is a sin and a sure sign of cruelty hence we find different laws in Jewish law shechita ritual slaughter is meant to be as humane as possible Hunting is a crime. One is not permitted to hunt. A Jew is not allowed to hunt. We're not even allowed to take eggs in the presence of the mother bird. And an ox who is threshing the corn may not be muzzled. You cannot muzzle the ox who is threshing the corn. Why? The ox wants to eat. He sees food over there. No, you can't thresh. You can't muzzle the ox. It's interesting. This also applies to a workman. If you have a a laborer picking the fruits of your trees. He can take as much as he wants to eat while he's picking the fruit. Have you ever been to a kibbutz? Whoever worked on a kibbutz, they tell you, "Yeah, go ahead, help yourself." If you're Picking oranges, you can have as many oranges as you want. Obviously, when you're picking oranges, you don't. F- after a while, you lose your desire for oranges. <laughs> you see so many, it comes out through your nose. But that is a law in the Torah, of compassion. Right? There's also mitzvah, as Debbie just said of not putting the yoke on two different species of animals. You cannot put an ox and a donkey together in the yoke. Why? The ox is stronger and the donkey is weaker. The donkey will suffer. he'd have to pull harder. An animal cannot be killed the same day as the child of the animal. The two animals cannot witness each other suffering. The blessing of Shekheyanu, which is normally made over new garments, is not made over leather shoes because an animal's life had to be taken to provide them. This is one of the reasons for the prohibition of leather shoes on Yom Kippur. It is not proper to pray to God for compassion while wearing an article of clothing that testifies to one's lack of compassion. On Passover we spill 10 drops of wine from our cup during the Haggadah. Why? Compassion for the Egyptians who had 10 plagues. So We have compassion even for our enemies. Modesty. What is modesty? Modesty signifies simplicity. A touch of bashfulness and reserve and privacy. Snoot, which implies modesty in dress. Traditionally covered parts of the body should not be exposed, although one can dress stylishly. Not only did the Bible prohibit removing all clothing, it does not permit wearing any garments belonging to the opposite sex as that might lead to unnatural lust and desire. So dressing in drag is forbidden in Jewish law. And all of this is happening before our very eyes. Modesty means discreet habits, quiet speech and affections which are privately expressed. Today, we talk about privacy. What do we talk about? We talk about property. We put signs up outside. Private, do not enter. Our homes are our castles. Private property, keep out. Our stocks and bonds are hidden away in vaults. But our bodies are open to all comers. God forbid someone should know a person's bank balance. But a casual meeting with a stranger in a bar is a warrant for immediate sex. And we're going to talk about that later on. I saw a a terrible article last week in the U.S. news about STDs. I mean, it's so prevalent today. It's it's terrible. It's uh, herpes. Thirty percent of the population. And if you can imagine this statistics. I mean, it's, what is going on today? Why? Where's the modesty? And the answer is modesty is existing today in property, private. Keep out. My body. Come in. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> the third thing is kindness it's interesting, when the rabbis discussed the shape of the letters, it's all about the shape of the letter Gimel. you didn't notice the letter, the Gimel. The Gimel has a leg and then it has a leg going in front, another leg in front. The rabbi said the leg in front is giving, it's like a hand stretched out. The gimel has like a hand in front of it stretched out to give. The Gimel stands for Gomel chasadim, And the Dalet, the, the leg of the Dalet is, it's not straight, it's slanted backwards. It's like the poor man walking with his hand behind his back and the rich man giving it to his hand. So the gimel stands for gomel chasadim, giving. And the stands for dalut, which is poverty. So the gimel is giving. Gomel chasadim. Generosity. Has always been one of the traits of the Jewish people. There are tons of Jewish charities. I don't know if you get the letters I get. I don't know if they know about you yet. If you don't, they don't, give me your address and I'll give it to them. But how much mail do we get every day? I get three or four letters at least a day. This charity and that charity and this charity. I But how much mail do we get every day? I get three or four letters at least a day from this charity and that charity and this charity. Gimelot Hasadim. Jews are known for giving. Today, Jews are giving to all different causes except their own. I didn't want to say that. Gimelot Hasadim. It's very important to be charitable and hospitable. Orchim, Which is The topic of this week's Torah portion is Abraham was hospitable to strangers. So was Lot, his nephew, that saved him from Saddam, his hospitality. That's part of Gibirut Hasidim kindness. Acts of kindness. Where do acts of kindness start? Where do they start? In the home? Talmud says if you have a choice of giving charity, who do you start with? Charity starts at home. Kindness starts at home. There's a beautiful story. It says, the grandson of the Chavitz Chaim, Chaim's grandson, learned in lake Yeshiva. It was 40 minutes away. And he started off, and he was the best student, and the most earliest in the morning, he came to prayers. Then he got married. Then slowly he started coming later and later and later. The Roshiva started getting worried about him. What's going on? He's the grandson of the Chavitz Chaim. What's going on with him? started missing prayers every morning, what's going on? So one day he called him in He said, tell me, he says, what's going on? I see you're coming later and later and then all of a sudden I see you dropped out of the minion over here You're not praying with us anymore, what's going on? Where are you? He said, Rabbi, he said, what can I tell you? He says, every day I pass by and there's a poor woman with six children and she's struggling in the morning so she can't manage. She's got to change this one's diapers, put this one in the school and feed this one. The rabbi say, wow. He says, really, you help her every day? He says, yeah. Who is she? Rabbi, it's my wife. <laughs> That's, um, charity begins at home and kindness also begins at home. We have to stress, you know the people who are kind to others. Look at Abraham. Unfortunate. He was kind to the whole world. He had time and patience for the whole world. His own nephew and brother-in-law parts ways. His own son Ishmael is thrown out. And that's something which we have to work on is kind of starts at home as well. There's a man who came to the rabbi and complained. said, so I come home and the house is a filthy mess. There's food on the floor, the kids are grinding wild, they're all dirty. What should I do? Should I get divorced? The rabbi said, yeah, take a broom and help. But that's where kind of starts. Instead of shouting, pitch in. Put some help, do some help. It's unfortunate. People don't realize that today. There's, there's very little understanding of how to behave in relationships. And we're going to talk touch more on that topic. we talk about Shalom Bayit, peace at home. It's very important. Number four. This is really one of the most important qualities which... Look, we've messed out intelligence. Sorry. Number four. Intelligence. One should try and marry... As intelligent and intellectual a person as possible, up to a level which will allow you peace at home. Because if you like someone who knows more than you, marry someone who knows more than you. If you like someone who knows less than you, depends on you. So be careful. Sometimes too high an intellect does not allow for peace at home, especially if you marry an absent minded professor. <laughs> not everyone can be Einstein's wife, why? The guy couldn't even remember where he put his shoes in the morning. So that's uh, something which is really up to a person's taste. Compatibly intelligent. Number five is probably one of the most important things. One of the most important questions a person should ask in considering a prospective spouse is what kind of parent will this person be? The Midrash notes, there are four motives in marriage. First one is physical pleasure. Today, that doesn't apply. I don't know why. (laughs) Number two, material advantages. Depends if you marry up, social climber. I said last week, I think there was a minister in New York, he used to ask the prospective couple, maybe you married him for his BMW. So, there may be material advantages. Third one, social prestige. Fourth one, rearing a family. Talmud says, only those prompted by the last motive will find satisfaction. It gives a beautiful blessing. It says, they will have children who will redeem Israel. Unfortunately, this is one of the last things on people's list. First one is physical pleasure, beauty. Second one is material advantage. Third one is social prestige fourth one, maybe, will have a family later on. The Talmud says, only those prompted by the last motive will find satisfaction. Because they are the givers. They are not takers, they are givers. And they will have children who will redeem Israel. A person may be willing to marry spontaneously out of love-struck emotion. But is that person willing to choose a father or mother for future children just as spontaneously? A role model for children? must have unmistakable integrity, honesty, honorableness. Children imitate not only words, but also qualities of character. And children can sniff a person. They don't have to ask them questions and talk to them. They can smell them and they know if the person is good or bad. Usually, a child has six cents when it comes to children. It's like a self-defense mechanism which God gave them. And they know who to keep away from and they know who to go to. So they usually imitate qualities of character. How many consumer reports do we read before buying a car or a major appliance? Shouldn't we be as careful when choosing a spouse? Number six is moral and ethical. That's part of being a role model for one's children also. And I have on my list which is the top of the right-hand side. Yichus. What about Yichus? Yichus means a good family. In those days, 50, 60 years ago, the family used to be the sole environment of a person in their formative years till they got married. People stayed at home, sometimes even after marriage. In fact, the chuppah, the wedding canopy, was usually built in the parents' backyard. And what happened was, the bride and groom moved in until they were self-sufficient. They moved into the backyard, to the house. Into a tent in the backyard, or a hut in the backyard, till and that's what happened in the old days when well, what would happen is they would subdivide the property. You have ten children, okay the property will subdivide. Ten children we get ten parts of the property. So they ran out of land. The family used to be the sole environment of a child in his formative years. Today, T V takes the place of the mother and the father in the formative years. The rabbis believe the influence of the family, which is absorbed subconsciously, is the strongest determinant of the child's behavior, his style, his expectations, and integrity. Rashi, the famous biblical commentator of Shlomo Yitzaki, French wine merchant, says, seek for yourself a quiet family, an argumentative family, very quiet, modest, stable family. Unfortunately, today, what happens if 50% of parents get married, I mean divorced, most, a lot of the children today are from divorced couples, and you don't see stable families. Where are they from? He's from a broken family. She's from a broken family. This one's from a broken family. What kind of role models do they have? How do you expect them to have a happy future? It's already one against... The ability and desire to sustain true love through many years of marriage can best be judged by the background and training of the partners. Today, as in ancient times, unless there's a rebellion against family upbringing, the child will fit the parents' expectations and values. We have a saying in English, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But, again, I, today I think it's much less applicable than it was before. Why? Because people met, leave their houses, leave their families at a very early age. Age of 18, they're in college, they're outside, they're a totally different person now. Today, it's much less bearing than previously. Previously, you could tell a child, you married a child, 18 years old, you got married, they were still staying at home, you knew exactly who they were, that's the upbringing they got. Today, they're 18 years old, they go away, they get married at the age of 28, 10 years, they haven't been home. Totally different person. You cannot go today by family. What about looks? Beauty. It's number four on the right hand side. The Bible, it's interesting, goes out of its way to describe the mothers, the matriarchs, as beautiful in form and in appearance. The Talmud says there were four very beautiful women in the world. It's interesting. He never talked about the looks of the men. Um only time it does, it talks about Asaph as being very ruddy. And King David also was very ruddy. His brothers were very handsome. But uh, that's the only time it doesn't really talk about much of the looks of men. But it goes out of its way to praise Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel as beautiful in form and appearance. The Talmud says there were four very beautiful women in the world. Sarah, Abigail, who was the wife of King David, one of his wives. Rahab, from Jericho, who later on married Joshua. She converted and married Joshua. And Esther, in the story of Purim. while they praise beauty the rabbi's cautioned it should not be the dominant quality why because unfortunately beauty has a habit of fading and if you know what you want to know really what someone's going to look like in 40 50 years time just look at their parents <laughs> it's a good guide looks are an, are an adv- advantage an added advantage or sometimes a disadvantage, because sometimes honey attracts bees. But the Tama does say, interesting statement. Three things expand the mind of a person. One of the three, three things that expand the mind of a person, makes a person very broad-minded. It says, a beautiful spouse, a beautiful apartment, and beautiful furniture. If a person has beauty at home, it's in a state of expanded mind. A person who has living in a dump cannot really think straight. So it has beauty has advantages. What about wealth? Judaism does not consider poverty to be noble. I don't know if you've ever realized that, but uh, you know, get that impression sometimes. Poverty is not noble. It is considered an unfortunate condition. Why? Because the time involved in struggling for a livelihood is losing makes uh, the desire for study less and depletes the desire for a highly spirituality. So a person who is involved in a daily grind, working really hard to make a living, eking it out, hundred hours a, a week, will have no time left for spiritual concerns. The person who spends their whole time busy with the physical materialism of this world, it says, Not everyone who goes into business Becomes wise. Why? A person gets involved with the physical world. So say a person who's well off. will have more time, hopefully, for spirituality. Unfortunately, what happens is they get carried away with other things. Um, But we should have more time today for spirituality. If we work a 40-hour week, how many hours in a week? You have a lot of hours left for other things. Especially on the weekends. That's what Shabbat is for. The main purpose of Shabbat is to go back and get into spirituality. Rabenu Tam, grandson of Rashi, would put four gold coins on the table when he would learn Torah. Why? I have like peace of mind, now I can learn properly. person who is worried about his living, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay the rent? How am I going to pay this? We have no peace of mind to learn. The possession of wealth is no transgression. However, sins may be committed when the accumulation of riches excludes other more worthy goals. The person makes that their whole motive in life. You know what? Another buck, another, another dime, another nickel, another this. That's all. At the expense of other more important things. Where if the, hut, the funds are hoarded selfishly rather than shared with the poor. And It's interesting. I read an interesting story today. It says The rabbi went to visit a miser. So he talked to him for half an hour, one hour. So the guy said, Look, what do you want from me? You know I don't give money. What do you want? He said, I'm visiting the sick said, who's sick? I'm not sick. He says, yes, you're sick. Because uh, in Proverbs, King Solomon says, a miser is a sick person. So I'm doing the mitzvah of visiting the sick. Oh, okay. I'm sick. I did not know I'm sick. Now. Tell me I'm sick. So yeah, not only that, but the Talmud says, when you visit a sick person, you reduce his sickness by one-sixtieth. When a person goes to visit the sick, they have some impact on the sick person to cheer them up, hopefully, and to give relieve them from the burdens of their worries. They remove one sixtieth of the six of this, of the sickness. Says, so hopefully, he says, I want one sixtieth of your sickness. Okay. Okay. Rabbi Bahia, thirteenth century Spanish scholar, cautions: One who marries an unworthy person. For good looks or money, we'll have children who are unworthy. And the money will not last. What are the negative qualities? we talked about the good qualities so far. What are the qualities to be careful from? First one is a perfectionist. Keep away from perfectionists. Why? Because nothing is ever good enough. Why? I come home, food is ready, table is laid. You know what? There's a little bit too much salt in my food. And I go berserk. What happened? You don't know how to cook? Well, you know what? The carpet, there's a little bit, a few specks on the carpet. Oh dear, it's terrible. That's a perfectionist. A person will never be happy with a perfectionist. Second quality to avoid is a person who is bad-tempered or argumentative. You want to keep away from someone who is very bad-tempered. Why? If you smile, the whole world smiles at you. If you frown, if you cry, you cry alone. A person who is bad-tempered always frowning and arguing and this and that doesn't make a very pleasant partner to be. And thirdly, Talmud warns, keep away from immoral people. Immorality. And today we know the consequences, not only spiritual consequences, the physical, tangible consequences of immorality. There's no... uh, It's not by chance that in the Ten Commandments, adultery and murder are put side by side. Because one could lead to another. The last issue we're going to discuss is, should they be alike or not alike? Should people be alike or not alike? Should the preferred partner be opposite or similar to oneself? Our tradition unmistakably considers marriages to have a better chance. Both mates have similar backgrounds and experiences. The Me'iri, who is a famous Talmudic scholar, says that the similarity of two natures will prompt greater love and fewer instances of friction. So if two people are alike, We have the same likes, we go to the same place, we like the same things. there's the same food. It's much easier to get along. But this one says, I want to go here. And the other one says, I want to go there. And this one says, I I don't like this. And the other one says, I I don't get along with that. I don't want to go to this restaurant. This one says, I don't want to go there. It's going to be very tough to get along. Probably they won't see each other very often. So obviously it's better to have two natures which are similar. There will be fewer instances of friction. What about age differences? The Talmud says as follows. If he is a young boy and she is an elderly person, if he is elderly and she is young, we say to them, what do you want with an old person? Or we tell the elder person, what do you want with a child? Look for someone like yourself and don't introduce quarrels into your own household. And we see this, you know, today's day and age with the multimillionaires who marry women who are 40 years younger, or 50 years younger, what happens to them? Usually a the big law cases when <laughs> they pass away, that's what usually happens. Now it's interesting, it's curious, the later rabbis, while they believed that husband and wife should have similar natures, also felt that opposite natures are preferred in sexual relations. Rabbi Ezekiel now notes that often when both have very hot natures, conception will be impeded. But if one is more active and one more passive, a passive doesn't mean frigid, don't get me wrong, references made to the description of Eve, Bible discusses Eve, it says she was Ezer connector, she was a helper against him, opposite him. In some respects, she was a helper, she was compatible. In other respects, she had a different drive. And that's usually the case. Um, it's good not to get burnt up. One person is hot, the other person is cooler, it's better. Why? They're both hot. They're going to burn each other out in no time. Probably get sick of each other, and that could be the end of everything. But Those are basically the ideas, the very general, I'm just generalizing, I've generalized a lot tonight. Um, Don't take me literally on every little point, but it's good. Pass this sheet out to people who are thinking of getting married, and let them grade each other. It's good to grade each other, and think about it carefully. How compassionate is the other partner? How modest? How kind? How intelligent? What kind of role model will they be? Are they moral? Are they ethical? Do they have gentle tempers? If you don't know the answer to these questions, Don't get married. And you won't find the answer to these questions by taking the other partner out to a movie or by dancing on the disco. That's one of the biggest failures of today's dating game. Why?